It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the day I was born Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of American Loser. It is the podcast that puts the spotlight firmly on second place. We are here, as always, at a shared universe studio in Eatontown, New Jersey. Behind the ones and twos, uh, who else other than the big kahuna? How you feeling, bud? I'm good, man. How you there doing? He is. I'm good. I'm happy to uh, happy to be back here, man. Mike and Ming take great care of us, as always. We're here in the studio. Uh, our guest today is a guy who's going to appreciate all the weird shit up on the walls here at a shared universe studio. <laughs> I want to say uh, hello real quickly to uh, our guest, my pal, a very, very funny comic guy uh, I used to do open mics with down in uh, the West Orange area. But smart guy, listens to the show too. And he's a handsome motherfucker. Uh, my friend Jay August joins the show. How you doing, pal? I'm doing all right, KP. We're doing well for making your quote of people that listen to the show as I am a completionist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's smart. He's going to be uh, – it's kind of like um, when we had Dr. Kate Burke on here that uh, we're having uh, Dr. Jay August is joining us. He is not a doctorate of anything in particular, but uh, you'll see he's a smart motherfucker as we go. Uh, also, South Beach Larry. Hey. <laughs> How you doing, you delf of a dad? Yeah, we're doing fine. We're doing fine. I, uh, I'm concerned, too. Uh, somebody met you the other day, and um, they hadn't met you beforehand. And their comment to me afterwards was, uh, oh, you know, it's, it's great, Doug, because I've heard the podcast before. And now that I've met him, I can, uh, I can assert he is a delf. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, I think. That's not good. That's not good. Um, now, uh, real quick, uh, Jay, uh, what did you go to school for? Because you're a very smart guy. I went to school for a very short amount of time. I hear you. You're one of those interesting guys where you kind of learned a lot of on-the-job training, shit like that, right? Well, my my father is a PhD in English, so <laughs> I grew up with a remarkably diverse and complicated vocabulary. That once I became uh, an adult and started doing comedy, I found out these are some weird words that I'm using. Yeah, did you find that your comedy uh, originally? Because you, you went up on stage the first couple times. We just tell you we're smart, dude. Everybody kind of. Did you think that growing up did that uh, did that create an obstreperous situation for you to try to overcome? Whoa, whoa, whoa. College mouth <laughs> word. I think proceeds uh, to look up abstractions. <laughs> I think my reputation as a sesquipedalian is well earned. Yeah, see, now we're talking. Wow, these guys got some book learning. No, uh, no, he's going to bury me on this one. Well, this I is used the episode where Big Kahuna just clocks out and <laughs> yeah. just sits quiet for, a, for an hour. He's been but I, I, I found out that there was a limitation when I was when I referred to someone as being a curmudgeon, and everyone went, oh, what? Like, I didn't think that was a particularly complicated <laughs> word. Curmudgeon? I've, I, even I've heard of that. Is that like some yeah, sort of a pussy? That. I'm just a lowly shop teacher, and I didn't get long well with the written word. Well, what I always like, because the, the angle I try to play is that every blue-collar job of her works, people are always like, this guy's smart. What are you doing here? And then you put me around smart people, and they're like, this guy should be like fucking roofing or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, man. We got an interesting guy to talk about here today. So I know that um, I, I've been wanting to bring you on for a while, Jay, and uh, I'm happy because I think we got a, a very interesting guy here to talk about that I know you know a little bit something about. So uh, first and foremost, if you guys don't understand the show here so far, uh, shame on you, first of all. All right. Then second of all. What we do on the show here is we talk about uh, different losers from American history. Now, a lot of the times, as Kahuna has demonstrated to us, 
there's different uh, sects of loser, if you will. <laughs> different levels. All right. So you can have some very weird guys like the guy uh, Charles Jagato who shot President Garfield, all right, which is a very weird thing. Um, and he was a, a complete psychopath. Then you have other guys that we think of as winners but actually were kind of losers. Then you have other stories where it's like a good guy who just fell on hard times kind of a thing. And today's episode, kind of a little bit of everything here with this guy. He's a pretty interesting fella. Uh, Kahuna, when you were a little kid, uh, did you ever watch the movie uh, White Fang? White what? White Fang. No, never no. heard of it. You never heard of White Fang? No. Not about what about Call of the Wild? That sounds more familiar, but it's not. I'm not getting an image in my head. These are. You ever hear the term the Great American Novel? Yeah. Okay, this is pretty much uh, the guy we're going to talk about today is the guy who they essentially crafted all that around. So now uh, my father's here, Jay Augs is here. You guys are going to step in when I'm wrong, all right? Because as someone pointed out in the iTunes uh, reviews, they love the show, but all the research clearly comes from Wikipedia. So, <laughs> not necessarily, but yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> so we're going to talk today. We got a. Uh, we're going to talk about one of the great American novelists, the face of American exceptionalism. He was called uh, Mr. Jack London. Have you heard of him, Cahoons? No. You never no. heard of Jack London? No. This one, I, yeah, I'm, st- I'm in the dark as usual. You're you ready? Shit, you ready for my jaw to drop today? <laughs> uh, it's, it should be dropping. The, actually, all of our jaws dropped that you haven't heard of Jack London. That's not yeah. good. But uh, no, we're going to learn you a little shit. something here. <laughs> yeah. Now, he's, uh, he takes a handsome photograph for his time. Don't get me wrong here. Now, uh, Kahuna, you'll notice that in his photo, which we will put up on the Instagram for when we release the episode, uh, this guy uh, existed in the uh, – that. End of the century, if you will. So the 1800s uh, going into the 1900s did not live long. All right. Uh, if you know anything about writers, you know that they're very happy, well-adjusted people who take good care of themselves. <laughs> Wait, which writers are you talking about? That's <laughs> now, uh, not for nothing here, I, I was a writing major uh, for my, uh, my brief stay at Brookdale Community College. But uh, the guy we're going to be talking about today, like we said, is Jack London, who takes a good photo. But if he was to smile in that photo you were just looking at, Kahuna, you would see a lot of his teeth are missing. All right, another thing pretty common for the time here. We're going to get into why some of his teeth were missing. Fascinating dude here. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is uh, Jack London, American Loser. Uh, Jack London died. All right, we're going to start at the end here. We're going to do a, a Tarantino kind of a thing. Uh, November 22nd, 1916. He died on a sleeping porch in his cottage on his ranch near Glen Ellen, California. London died from a combination of late-stage alcoholism, including kidney failure, Uremia, which, Jay, do you know what that is? Or? It's kidney failure. Yeah, so yeah. not good. Not good. It sounds. Yeah, urine is now in your bloodstream. Not, I, not a good thing. Oh, yeah. so when you're full of piss and vinegar, that's, that's what they mean. Okay. Yeah, when you have uremia and kidney failure, it's pretty tough. All right, and this is, uh, keep in mind, 1916, <laughs> so it's not exactly, uh, we're not in the uh, Sloan Kettering time frame here. But uh, he also had dysentery, which is uh, just a fun thing to have. It's as fun to have as it is to say. Uh, and a, uh, he also has a controversial morphine overdose that's attributed to his death here. Now, London spent the uh, later half of his short life as an American living legend, okay? Uh, he had a life filled with adventure and travel. He was accompanied by some of the finest writing in American history, too. This guy was uh, prolific. When you look at his credits, like Kahuna is scrolling through his credits right now on Wikipedia. This dude did some shit, all right? You're having to go full screen on him just to cover yeah, all this stuff, too. It, it's pages and pages uh – Long here, not just uh, written novels, but uh, plays and uh, he's, plays, he's poetry, pro- prolific. books, and one, and one of the most significant short story writers. Yeah, as well. And they said that's his best genre too, mm-hmm. the short story, which I appreciate because we we read him in uh, one of my short story classes at Brookdale, 
And the way that the professor uh, did everything, he would give us the zeitgeist in the background of the uh, uh, the author. And he would give us the zeitgeist of the times he was writing in and then why that was important to what they were talking about. So pretty fascinating dude here uh, in his own right. But uh, the guy was an American living legend. He died one of the most famous people in the world. So he was born uh, now January 12th. Let's go to the other end of the story here. 1876, London was a descendant of the early Puritans on his mother's side. His mother, uh, was, her name was Flora Wellman. Now, these words get interesting, all right? Um, Kahuna, you have a creative past. We won't say, um, we won't say the good DNA that uh, uh, comes from you, but you, you come from artists. You know what I mean? That's fair to say? <laughs> yeah. Right? We won't reveal who it is on the show here. But um, you had a uh, – did, did you – was that impacting you uh, the way that you grew up a little bit where you had creative people in the family growing up? Oh, yeah, up? absolutely. So – because you're a pretty creative kid, man. Well, thank you. I do think so. There's always a good idea coming out of your head here. You know, it's usually about 10 minutes after I said it, but it's <laughs> <laughs> typically. No. Uh, so was that interesting for you because you grew up in a, in a family full of creative people? Absolutely. I, I think that because of that, it changed the way I looked at things even when I was younger. Just to, like I got introduced to different sorts of music early on, different types of movies early on. Like I think it was in the long run a much – it was a huge benefit. I would call you a Generation X's millennial, if that makes any sense. There's people that appre- – you have an appreciation for things that Gen X people would have. So it's okay. a, you're not an average millennial here. You're not just on Snapchat every episode while we're doing this. You've got some interesting <laughs> shit to say. But, and an appreciation of things that have gone on before. Also true. Because <laughs> I, I love this stuff. That's why I love this podcast so much. I've always loved history and even even the losers. So uh, it doesn't get now. You're going to see. We have to go a little bit crazy here to find the losing in Jack London. But I think you'll appreciate this. You want to talk about a weird upbringing? Um, Flora, Jack London's uh, mother, she spent some time in Ohio before the wealthy family, who, like we said, were the de- descendants of the Puritans. All right, so that's old money. Old yeah, she's coming from old, old. This is old timey money. This is truly going about a Pulp Fiction way. That was probably spot on. We talked about his death. Now we're talking about his mom. It, uh, We're going back and forth. Yeah, well, well <laughs> Wait to, uh, our gold watch moment's and... pretty great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, now Flora was interesting. They, the family moved out west to the Pacific, and Flora there worked as a music teacher and a spiritualist. Uh, Jay, do you know what a spiritualist is? I believe that's when someone believes it, that they talk to the dead or the mm-hmm. spirit world. So that's going to have a, a little impact on you when uh, your mother said – like my memories are of my mom being on the phone with uh, my aunts and uh, <laughs> yeah, my grandmother or her dead? talking on the phone with a friend. And then imagine no, how no, no. – imagine Still how she's living. having a conversation with dead people and there's no phone in her hand. And you're just like, mom, are you busy? I'm busy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but at the, again at the time though, that spiritualist uh, kind of a thing was uh, – part of the genre of the day. I mean, there was many people in, at, at that particular time in, in history that were fascinated with that whole uh, talking with the past. I mean, Houdini had had that whole thing that he was trying to always reach his, his dead mother. And so, I mean, it's the he same time frame. The spe- he hated the fake spiritualist. Right, absolutely, because he was always, well, we're going off off the rails here. With, it, but it's a good off the rails for a second. Yeah. You know, the, the person who said to, uh, told Houdini that they had spoken to his mother. Um, he knew that she was full of shit because he was looking for this his whole life to try to have a – he was so close with his mom. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this woman claimed to be speaking with Houdini's mother and Houdini goes, you're a fucking liar. And then she goes, uh, she goes, well, no, no, this is what she's saying. She goes, she, you're saying it in English. My mother never spoke English. <laughs> so, yeah, beyond the grave, they had a, a you know, fucking 
what do you want to call it? Uh, uh, they had like e a little pact. Yeah, a little right. ESL or something like that. You know what I mean? It's uh, to go ahead and teach you English from beyond the grave. You're not even <laughs> as far away from the topic as you think you are because Jack London and Houdini are Eskimo brothers. Whoa, wait, what? <clears throat> yep. They are Eskimo brothers. After Well, after uh, London's passing, his second wife was not uh, exactly the marrying type, <laughs> but she liked to have fun occasionally, and one oh, of her yeah. hookups was Harry Houdini. No shit. Get out of here. Now, is it true that um, I believe when she was having sex with Houdini that uh, during sex he actually uh, got up left and then walked around outside and waved to her from the window? <laughs> That's how they got called a Houdini, all right? Oh, wow. Jesus. Uh, fascinating factor. We're going to get into that in a second. Uh, London's life is – it's wild, man. This guy's a rock star. If you want to draw a comparison to who somebody might think he might be, if you want to draw a little bit of a comparison to maybe a Chris Cornell or a Kurt Cobain kind of a uh, person, there's a lot of it in there because there's some weird shit going on with his life as we're going to get to. Now, spiritualism, like you were saying, LP, pretty popular today. Not a wacky thing uh, for – she's not the only one who thinks she can talk to the – Well, it was, it was scoffed at, but it wasn't, it wasn't out of the norm for people to uh, have those kind of leanings either. So, I mean, it, you know, everybody was for, – forever was always trying to – Talk to the dead. I mean, who wouldn't want to talk to? Uh, well, she had an interesting person. Rather than Flora. seeing dead people on your television, or something. right? Flora had an interesting person that she could um, was in regular contact with too. She claimed to be in contact with uh, Black Hawk, who was a chief of the Sauk tribe, who had fought against the Americans in the War of eighteen twelve, hoping to spread the uh, stop the spread of the uh, the white man, if you will, which uh, is kind of hilarious because Black Hawk. We named uh, – we've honored him by naming our helicopters and a Chicago hockey team after him. So didn't quite stop the spread of the white man into you know, the Midwest and everything. But uh, at well, least – we got some kick-ass helicopters. Yeah, you got a couple Stanley Cups <clears throat> out of it. Certainly a warrior though. I mean and I think that's the whole vibe with the Black Hawk helicopter and of course the, the warrior aspect of the hockey team. So Oh, absolutely. And you'd, you'd hope too because uh, not for nothing, it would be very funny if um, you know, Flora was in there. She goes, uh, no one come in here right now. I'm, I'm a Black Hawk. I got some Black Hawk coming over. <laughs> yeah. Incoming. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> now, Flora knew uh, many people and many spirits, uh, but she didn't seem to know the father of her son, Jack, or at least she never admitted it publicly. So for a woman, she knows all these spirits and everything like that. I can't quite figure out who her father is. No, well, who her – I'm sorry, who the, the, her baby daddy is. Right. I apologize. Well, good right. catch. Um London's biographer surmised that uh, Jack's father is astrologist. Now, uh, we say astrologist here, Jay. Uh, when you hear astrologist, <laughs> you probably know the true meaning of it. I heard astrologist, and I was like, oh, cool. He's a scientist with a telescope. <laughs> what do they mean by astrologist in this time frame? Basically, you're, you're another fortune teller, a horoscope. <laughs> your horoscopes and what the moon and your phase is. So mom talks to the dead spirits. And uh, dad uh, can tell you uh, when your chakra is going to be aligned with the stars. Uh, and your lucky numbers are. Yeah, and doing <laughs> horoscopes and shit. So that's going to lead to an interesting child. No? Is that fair to say? Not in this instance. I mean, <laughs> if you want to talk genetics, sure. But they're not super involved as he grows up necessarily. No, not, not at all. Uh, and then there's even a, a very weird uh, letter that comes in later on in the story too as well. Um, London's uh, biographer surmised that Jack's father was this astrologist. Uh, that's that ancient biblical stars are telling us the past and future type. The guy's name was uh, William Cheney. Mom talks to dead people. Dad gets messages from the stars. Sounds like a very happy, creative family for a child to grow up in. Uh, they'd never really find out, though, because Flora was living with Cheney at the time that she became pregnant. But uh, there are no records of whether or not uh, they were married. 
Uh, but Flora did go by the Cheney last name several times. Right. So a lot of the records got destroyed. There's a lot of reports, too, that uh, mom wasn't exactly uh, monogamous in her relationship with Cheney. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, too, because there is that um, – we have this idea that the California thing, the whole hippie free love move, we have an idea that that started in the 60s with the sexual revolution. This shit was going on beforehand. <laughs> all right. People a little loose out west, man. It just is what it is. There was just no Woodstock yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, well, Kinison had a great bit, too, because uh, Kinison was, uh, you know, Sam Kinison, one of the greatest stand up comics of all time, uh, who started off in <clears> Texas. He talked about when he got out to California and he goes, he goes, yeah, and I was dating a girl out there who goes, she goes, I love you enough that if you really want it, I'll bring another woman into our bed. And he goes, you got to move to California because that's the only place they make those kind of women. <laughs> <laughs> and that was back in the 80s. But uh, the, uh, a lot of the, the records were destroyed uh, in the 1906 earthquake. So you really can't figure out. There's not too much to trace on the, uh, the actual story here. However, there are some articles in the newspaper written about a pretty noteworthy event. Uh, Cheney demanded Flora get an abortion. All right. She wants a... He wants her to abort what will become Jack London, one of the greatest authors of all time. Uh, demands Flora get an abortion, and in her refusal, she actually protests by shooting herself, Kahuna. Yeah. Not you're, shot you're, dead, though. Just, well, I would, uh, yeah. just kind of I making would, a, hey, look at me kind of a statement. Your puzzled look is correct, friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like in the foot? Like in the like, or is it not specified? I'm so confused. Why did she shoot herself? Well, it's not a great way to. to um, it's not a great way to, to demonstrate you're unhappy with the situation. But uh, what were you going to say, John? Well, she had two suicide attempts in this. Yes, one was an overdose of laudanum, which didn't take. <laughs> so then she sh- tried to shoot herself in the head, and I believe the gun misfired. So, you know, you just she might be the early one for losing it, dying. Well, uh, I just picture young Jack London asking, Mom, where do babies come from? <laughs> well, uh, sometimes when a mommy and a daddy uh, disagree on whether or not they should become mommies and daddies, mommy will take a lethal dose of laud into the head. <laughs> but sometimes you just stick around because you're a stubborn little bastard, aren't you, Jack? Um, now, interesting here. So she does shoot herself. Um, and though she's not seriously hurt, she is considered temporarily insane. Uh, after giving birth uh, to young baby John, who would later become known as Jack, uh, the baby is given to Miss Virginia Prentice, uh, LP. Yeah. What, what's interesting about Virginia Prentice? There's a lot of things that are interesting about uh, Jenny Prentice or Virginia Prentice. Uh, she was a former slave um, who actually became uh, John or Jack's uh, wet nurse that she had just recently delivered a stillborn. And uh, then Jack was put, or John was put into her care for the upbringing. But she was an interesting person to begin with. She's a a former slave um, from Virginia, um, but she was made like the companion of the uh, plantation owner's daughter. So she uh, early on learned how to read and write. So she was an educated woman. And then when the the Union... um, kind of took over the plantation in, in this, during the Civil War or, you know, entered onto the property. Um, she uh, took off for safer locales, I think ended up in Missouri, uh, and then eventually made her way to, um, to San Francisco, where Jenny, um, Jenny Prentice marries Alonzo. Uh, now, Alonzo... Um, That's Alonzo Mourning from the NBA, correct? <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite. 
Uh, I think it was Alonzo Prentice, but uh, anyhow, she, she, Jenny and Alonzo go from Missouri and then um, comes into uh, San Francisco in the 1870s. Uh, Alonzo was a carpenter, and uh, you know, as the as um, Jack was put into her care, she really became his his mammy, his his second mother. And well, it's important too because people will try to say that Jack London was racist. Um, that that comes up later on, and, and it's not necessarily against African Americans, but uh, clearly a very affectionate relationship between him and uh, Miss Prentice. Yeah, they they say that all the nurturing that Jack did receive as a child was really um, due to uh, Jenny's uh, doing, not nothing really from the mother. There was really no ma- strong maternal uh, instinct between Jack and his natural uh, mother, but it was more from uh, Jenny. She. Uh, the, the, the families remained close um, um, f- all through his upbringing, um, and uh, John or Johnny came to view the the Prentice children, um, who you know she later had additional uh, kids. Um, unfortunately, her, uh, Jenny's kids never really uh, lived beyond uh, early childhood. So. Brutal times, man. Yeah, Brutal it, times it was, it for was that tough. shit. But. Um, you know, Johnny uh, comes to view the the Prentice children as his cousins and attends various uh, African American activities as a church and family. Um, Jack London really got his first introduction to any kind of religion through the uh, through the nurturing of uh, of Jenny. Oh, uh, so he, because of Virginia, so because of Virginia. Or because of Jenny, he starts to become a little well, bit Virginia more. Virginia is Jenny. Jenny, Jenny he, is he, a nickname for Virginia. Oh, okay. So like then, that. yeah. So wait, his mom was a spiritualist then, but she wasn't really heavily religious. Is that why? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so Virginia, his African American uh, stepmother, if you will, uh, you know, who, who's playing the role of mom, if you will. Yeah. Uh, she is pretty much the reason that Jack has anything good in his life early on, because, like we said, Dad wants nothing to do with you. Yeah. Wanted you to be aborted. Mom uh, put a hole in her head. To try to get rid of you, um, and then she's busy talking to dead bodies and stuff like that. You know, oh, the spirits in this place—they must be great. And Jack's like, "Can I please just? Can you please fucking feed me?" <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Can I have something to eat? Uh, yeah, but he—he's uh, introduced to religion, you know, formal religion, um, through um, the nurturing of Jenny. Uh, attends uh, Sunday school at the uh, First African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church or the AME Church. Um, Jack really showed his love for Jenny uh, later on after he became, you know, uh, a wealthy man by donating uh, you know, a substantial sum of money to to her church. Um, and in, in, even after his death uh, in Jack's will, um, he uh, um, provided for his stepmother, his, his, his mammy that— uh, supported that who was by that time a widow but uh, remembered her in his will um, that the, the quote that I came across was to my old mammy Jenny Prentice my estate shall pay $15 each month also in addition my estate shall see that she is suitably housed and shall pay for said housing also a lot of money back then he wasn't just being a cheap oh, that, fuck. yeah, fifteen fifteen dollars <laughs> uh, each yeah. month that's that's big bucks. Yeah, that's big bucks. I mean, back then, and then it makes you wonder too, because why bother? This is the other thing too. They they actually tried to they named a street after Jack London in Canada, and then the uh, the liberals up in Canada went nuts about it because there was allegations that Jack London was racist. So they actually changed the name of the street back to something stupid like Two Mile Street or something like that. So they went back to like a super generic name. 
uh, because it, that's why I feel like it doesn't matter when you try to do um, try to be as progressive as you can here. But in 30 years, we're all going to be called racist. That's just what it is because we progress moves on and then you undo. So Jack London gets this bad reputation as a racist guy, even though he donated a big ton, like a huge portion at the time. For, of his uh, fortune to a black church that he grew up in and had this great family with and shit. So yeah. just wild stuff. Because he was – he did have some racist things going on. just didn't – had nothing to do with black people. Right. You know, when um, supposedly he had coined the phrase the great white hope. Uh, that was about – yeah, that's that. We, we were going to try to avoid that with the, the whole Jack Johnson thing. But, um, but Jack Johnson being an amazing black boxer, my buddy uh, Chris Stefano, his podcast, History Hyenas, did a whole episode on him. Yeah. So I'm trying to stay a little bit far away from that one if we can. But he did coin the term, right. the Great White Hope, for that fight. Right, but it wasn't in a racist sense. He was saying that no matter whether whatever the race the person was, you have to admire that Jack Johnson was an amazing fighter. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, he was also having a few short stories that were talking about, like I think one of them even might have been called The Yellow Peril. Because he he coined the yellow peril about uh, the the influx of uh, Asian immigrants coming in, particularly the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, because uh, if you keep in mind too, he, <clears throat> out in San Francisco, that was you had um, uh, Ellis Island in New York, and then you had Angel Island out west. So that was where all the Asians were coming in from there. But pretty cool stuff here. We're going to move on forward with this one if we can. We got to. I want to keep these at about an hour, all right? And we're already 24 yeah. minutes in because LP Good wants to – LP's doing the mammy history. Sorry. <laughs> right. right. 15 minutes on his mom. You're going to blame LP. Busting chops, man. No, it's important that we lay that groundwork here too for him because I want to try to give a, an accurate portrayal of the guy here. But his life is so fucking interesting. And it's a short life too, by the way. Uh, you have a shorter lifespan back in the day. But this guy had an extra short life. And we're going to realize it's because he liked to drink a little too much. Well, number of issues, but yeah. Yeah, uh, also, yeah, I think the list uh, of his final, um, we'll get to it at the very end here, but the things that finally killed him, I think it's like about a list, about a page long of shit that was wrong with him at the time. Jesus. But uh, in 1876, uh, Flora married a uh, disabled Civil War veteran named John London, and the young boy was taken in, and they moved out to Oakland. Uh, Now, uh, Oakland at the time, uh, going through some crazy stuff, uh, John Gruden's uh, decision to trade Khalil Mack to the Bears. Still not well received. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. So he was dealing with a lot of stuff with that. Um, now, uh, London would complete uh, grade school in the San Francisco and Oakland area. It becomes a huge, huge chunk of his life because he's actually um, – all of his stories for the most part, a lot of them take place in the San Francisco area. So what's really cool here too is that uh, his sense of adventure and bold new ideas of the times had a deep impact uh, on London who would often study uh, for school in a famous saloon. So you're a boy studying for school in a bar. Known as Heinold's First and Last Chance Saloon, LP. Why did they call it the First and Last Chance Saloon? It was. It was a very. Fan, it still stands today, but uh, it was right on the waterfront, and it was your last chance to grab a drink before you're on a long sea voyage, or your first chance to grab a drink as you're coming off a long sea voyage. I'm, I'm being. I'm not drinking right now. Maybe I'll never drink again. Who knows. But uh, if I do ever make it out there, I'm having one for Jack London <laughs> there at you the go. first and last chance. There you go. It has yeah, what well, was interesting too that you know he's where he's is a, it in California? It's in Oakland. That's I'm, a pic, I that's might a be going right out there. in the next three weeks. I'll take a picture and I'll well, send it to you. Put that put that on the list, guy. Put that on the list. What was interesting too? Now here's he's a schoolboy and he's in this you know it's a saloon of nothing but you know waterfront toughs, if you will. Uh, so he's. Overhearing a lot of the stories that uh, the various uh, seafaring men are talking about, um, he is learning to become the, the, uh, learning the sailing craft or how to navigate. Um, but there's also uh, references to the fact that there was this really large. Dic- 
It's kind of a gun going on. Oh my yeah. god, you're subtle. <laughs> you tried to discreetly take the cup holder out. Now we need to re- you need to recap that now. That was as subtle as a hand grenade. Yeah, just let you guys in my boredom of my father's speech. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> All right. You know, Damn. fucking around here. Uh, Mike and Ming, Don't come on. Leave get, us. Yeah, Mike and Ming, how about a real podcast table in this second suit instead of a fucking poker table, you cheap fucks? All right? <laughs> Damn, man. I've paid enough money in this place. We should have a real table in here, Kahuna. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. But no, uh, I'm messing around on that one. I just tried taking, uh, I clanged my, uh, my glass bottle against uh, one of the metal pieces in the table here. And it made a loud noise and it pissed me off. So I threw it on the ground where it made a louder noise. <laughs> so it's the other one, which in turn also made a sound. Uh, luckily now, I am out of things to throw. All right. So, I think so far, okay. we still have uh, phones and a couple other things uh, scattered about. London spent much of his time over at Heinold here. It's uh, being used as an early setting for a lot of his works. John Heinold, the owner of the establishment, even winds up lending London money for him to attend the University of California, Berkeley. That was his dream to go out there. Right? That's cool. Now, long before his short stay over at Berkeley, London had already lived a rather peculiar life. London was an avid reader and was largely self-educated with encouragement from his quote, and we're going to use this term loosely, Kahuna, creative mother. Okay. She's busy talking to the dead spirits up in the attic somewhere. Yeah. Then she comes down and she goes, oh, John, you should write. You have such a vivid imagination, <laughs> John. Uh, London was also guided by – this is kind of cool here – a uh, woman at the library. He used to go down to the library in San Francisco, and there was this sympathetic woman here who worked at the library. Her name was uh, Itna Coolberth, who helped London in his self-education. Or she would encourage him to read all that other stuff. Now, she herself goes on to become one of the most important poets in the San Francisco Bay Area writer scene, which is a happening fucking scene. This is all – you want to talk about the 60s and the, you know, the Woodstock, all that other shit? Uh, the original, like the whole San Francisco, the Haightbury Ash shit. Or uh, whatever it was called. So it just kind of so just history repeated itself in, a, in an odd way, kind of. Then yeah, well, well uh, it, it was a happening place. You have to have the seeds in order to grow into any sort of thing um, kind of cool out there. So this stuff's going on way before the whole hippie revolution, if you will. But anyway, uh, Idna Coolberth uh, goes on to become one of the best writers, uh, the best well-known writers too in the San Francisco Bay Area. And this is a girl who just happens to be working in the library and encouraging a guy who's going to go on to become the most famous author in America. Yeah, she becomes uh, the poet laureate for the state of California. She's, she's See, I never know how to say her. laureate. I never know how to pronounce that word, so it's I just avoid it at all costs. <laughs> Ask Jay, he'll tell you. <laughs> he would know it. Uh, what's the correct pronunciation of that, Jay? Well, LP added perfectly. It's poet laureate. Nice. Now we're talking. I only know I'm that not term because of say. Bukowski. That's <laughs> Um, in uh, 1889, London began working uh, 10 to 12-hour days at age 13, okay? Kahuna, you're, uh, you're 21, right? Yeah. And you still watch cartoons. <laughs> yes. So, I, am, I am 31 yeah, and still try to tell jokes for a living. Uh, <laughs> so both of us are complete failures on the Jack London scale. He was working 10 to 12-hour days in a cannery at age 13. Now, seeking a way out, London borrowed money from, guess who, LP? I know who. Who? His mammy, Virginia, Virginia Prentice. Prentice. Yeah, Virginia Prentice. <laughs> she, she gave him money to buy his uh, first boat. And uh, she, the boats, by the way, uh, one of the great names here. Uh, Jay, if you were to have a boat, what would you name it? If, if forced, I would call it the Razzle Dazzle. <laughs> 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 On point, my friend. He buys a, uh, a sloop sailboat uh, known as the Razzle Dazzle Kahuna, and he becomes Jack London. 
who will become one of the great authors in American history, starts his life out uh, as auspiciously as possible as an oyster pirate. <laughs> He's pirating oysters. Wait, what? Kona thinks we're fucking around there. <laughs> Yeah. Honest engine. Because like I'm I'm like trying to follow along because I truly did feel bad that I didn't know who this guy is. Although further inspection, I did know what Call of the Wild <laughs> was. But I was reading and then you were just like oyster pirate. I was like, where the fuck does it say that? <laughs> this is illegal oyster pirating off the coast of uh, Oh, California. illegal oyster pirate. Oh, yeah. Okay. Illegal so he oystering. is he's an actual oyster pirate. Whereas uh they don't use Son the term it's not like uh because we, we talked about this before. You hear pirate, you assume uh movie recorded with you know a cell phone camera <laughs> but uh no it's uh, it's interesting here because he winds up working as an oyster pirate these are the men's that would uh they would illegally harvest uh oysters or steal and, somebody else's right and become a uh, large part of uh, some of london's early literary works but uh within a few months uh the razzle dazzle was damaged uh, beyond repair and london who enjoyed his life on the water decided to join up with the california fish patrol <laughs> kind of a weird move. The other end of the yeah, spectrum. to join the California Wildlife Commission after working as a uh, any job experience. Well, I've, I've worked in a similar field yeah, I before. I tried to hide from I you mean, guys, <laughs> so I know all the tricks. I mean, it's the best job after being a person like that, because then they're like, "Now we need you. How'd you how'd you get away, how'd you get away from us to teach all the tricks?" There's well, a catch me if you them. can kind of a vibe here. Yeah. Though. Now, while uh, London's time at sea would take him on a voyage to Japan, upon returning to the United States, he found his home of California in rough shape due to the Panic of 1893. Kahuna, can you remember the first topic we talked about on this show for American Loser? No. Way back president was... Grover Cleveland, all right, who uh, was president uh, in his second term. He's the first president to ever serve non-consecutive terms. And in the Panic of 1893, which was largely blamed on Grover Cleveland and his, quote, bourbon Democrats. Yeah, and unfortunately, all of that took place because of legislation that was passed before Grover Cleveland came into <coughs> office. But he still took the he still still took the blame for it. But. Right. So uh, now it, he also had that break in service too, where it was Benjamin Harrison that was really fucking everything up. But he was already out of office by the time the hit happened. So the unrest during this time leads to London's quote radicalization for uh, workers' movement and his left-leaning politics. He joined a movement known as Coxey's Army, led by Ohio businessman Jacob Coxey. And began his life as a, quote, tramp. So this is where Jack London's bouncing around all over the place, pretty much doing the vagabond bohemian thing. But LP, what is uh, – you, actually, Jay, do you know what uh, Coxie's army was? You got me on this one. Uh, it's not a it, – it's a weird thing here, but uh, LP knows a little bit more than I do. Uh, Coxie's army was just this uh, whole – it was really the first march on Washington um, to demand uh, workers' rights and, and jobs that people were um, – a huge unemployment throughout the nation, and people were just demanding jobs. And uh, this guy uh, Coxie starts this whole movement that they were going to march on uh, on Washington. And there was a lot of other similar movements as well. That um, I don't believe Jack London actually marched with Coxie's army, but there was another guy, uh, Keeley, that became known as Keeley's army. That was started in a different section of the country, but. They were just going across the country and trying to get to Washington any way they could by hijacking trains, uh, and then they, they would be fed by the, the locals as they moved across the country That uh, by the generosity of uh, farmers and the locals that would come out and feed these guys. And we're talking a substantial number of people, so... Um, you know, then, then a lot of it, the whole socialist uh, uh, upbringings, if you will, or, or starts were... 
kind of developed through this whole thing that you know you're you're out of work and who are you going to blame? Well, the, the banks and big business and, and the railroads that uh, right. I get not trusting the government too because you're all the way out in California at the time, so your representation is actually further away uh, in a lot of uh, estimations than uh, when England was going over the colonies. So you're like, oh, cool, that's great. You know, we got our own thing now, but you're all the way over there. There's that saying in uh, Japan that uh, uh, what was it? Yeah, life is good when the emperor is far away, kind of a thing. There's no way that they, there's no tyrant, uh, tyranny rather when um, the uh, the emperor can't really see what's going on. But at the same time, there's also not a whole lot of laws. So California is essentially about as wild west as it gets at this time. They got a little bit of thing. There's a, there's certain cultures built up and shit like that. But yeah, but Jack London also had some, uh, you know, a lot of uh, well, we, we, today we would call a blue collar work. You know, he worked in this cannery for 12 to 18 hours a day as a 13 year old, paying being paid like nothing. Um, Slave, slave labor type of a thing. He works as the oyster pirate. He's working for the California Fish Patrol. He's on this sailing schooner going off the coast of Japan. He works in a jute mill, that, which is another, you know, uh, very mundane, uh, um, breaking you um, all kinds of hours a day. He works in a streetcar power plant uh, in San Francisco. And, you know, everybody's out of work. So that, the whole terminology of, of the hobo's life, the riding the rails and just trying to find an existence somewhere, you know, a handout of, or, um, you know, a short-term employment, um, this is really what this whole movement was all about. They were really just an army of like 10,000 of uh, hobos that would just invade a, a town and uh, but a hobo's life is better than a life in a cannery at this point so yeah you're not eating as much and you're sleeping in weird fucked up places but you're not in the cannery so that's what you know it went to being better off that way for in my estimation at least now uh it's probably because you lost your job in the cannery though and you hate it when you smell like fish uh also true <laughs> <laughs> right um, now, what's interesting here, too, is that he, he gets arrested for vagrancy and winds up spending 30 days in Erie County Penitentiary in Buffalo. Grover Cleveland, uh, not at the same time, but Grover Cleveland, the president responsible for the Panic of 1893, was also the sheriff of Erie County before he was president. So London's interred up at this uh, penitentiary, if you will, and he said that it was some of the nastiest conditions he'd ever seen in his life. Really had a profound effect on him. Now, London's time as a sailor and a hobo made his stories highly entertaining. So now all of a sudden he's the happy hour hero down at Heinold's first and last chance saloon because he's got some good stories of his own to kind of you know hold his water, if you will, with the fucking locals. So uh, he entered and uh, won a writing contest at the encouragement of his mother who told him like, oh, you have to write this great story. Uh, it's such a good story. Write it down on paper, put it in for this contest. And he winds up beating several college-educated writers. Now this is just a kid working in a cannery. So he's already got a natural predisposition for this. Uh, it also reinforced London's desire when he won the competition for higher education. We already talked about how he's talking to the bar owner. Normally when you talk to a bar owner or a bartender about something, it's how to get your wife to quit busting your balls. Jack London's talking to the bar owner about dreaming of going to the University of California, Berkeley. So after passing his uh, examinations and being accepted into Berkeley with money from Heinold's, uh, you know, funding the education effort – London is actually unfortunately forced to leave school due to insufficient funds. All right, so he finally accomplishes his dream and then just can't make it work. So around age 21, London searches for and finds the newspaper article. And I imagine that it would also be at the library. So Idna Coolberth is probably involved in this part of the story too. Uh, finds yeah, I mean, a newspaper. All your, all your research, you weren't Googling that stuff back yeah. then. So 
your best place for doing any kind of research is at the library. So it would make sense that um, you know we can assume that that's where the, the discovery was made. Well, uh, he goes ahead and he finds the article about uh, his mother's attempted suicide while pregnant. And uh, that's kind of a tough thing. While she to was read pregnant about. with him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of a tough thing. Hey, Mama, you know what was pregnancy like? You know what, what were you eating? Were you, uh, right. you know, what methods of uh, yoga were you going to? Oh, you could find that in the Sunday Times. <laughs> yeah. There was also a story that made it into the paper about the father's abuse of the mother when she right. was pregnant. Now, did he find that as well? Because they don't say if he found that part here, but he did find out about his father a little <clears> bit. So he goes ahead. Now, if you don't know, if you're a, a new listener to the show or you just haven't figured out the dynamic yet. Uh, I'm actually adopted. I, I love the shit out of my dad here. I'm not biologically uh, your son, but it was prearranged. I was your kid before I was even born, right? So everybody knows that. But uh, if you don't know, now you do know. That is why when you meet my father, he is a tall, handsome, strapping man <laughs> with very low body fat. And I, on the other hand, am Barney Rubble. So, uh, but he goes ahead and he, uh, he writes a, a letter when he's reading about this article. He decides to write a letter and reach out to the man he believes might be his father, Mr. William Cheney. Cheney uh, now not only denies being his father, he says, uh, there's no way I'm your father because, uh, first of all, I'm impotent and your mother's a whore. So, <laughs> Not exactly how you wanted to find this yeah, one right. out here. Yeah. So he's saying, he goes, uh, yeah, my uh, my shit don't work, so I can't be your dad. So not only is this letter to your dad you know, wrong from the uh, the onset, uh, also your mother was uh, – she had loose morals, if you will. And then uh, on top of that – It's I also kind of reflective as to why he asked her to, to abort uh, back, you know, back when. It's not his kid. She's living with him. It's not his kid, and everybody's going to assume that he's the daddy. And he's not. He knows for sure he's not the daddy. So I mean, uh, that was kind of a devastating thing to uh, to Jack. Now on top of that, so you're already you're, you're striking out hard here. All right. So you're finding out your mom is not the uh, uh, the essence of purity that she might <laughs> be considered. Right. Uh, you're finding out the guy you think is your biological father says he physically can't be. All right. You're also reading the article about how uh, you know, as John was saying, as Jay was saying, rather. Uh, there was abuse going on in the household. Your mother tried to kill herself rather than give birth to you. And then uh, on top of that, he also says the, the last line here that kind of broke Jack London's spirit. He goes, uh, William Cheney tells me, he goes, actually, Jack, if you're really looking for a victim in all this, it's me, not you. I've got it way harder than you. I got all these allegations coming at me. People think I'm a bad dude. Uh, so really, you know, I, mean, I feel bad for you, but I mean, just be grateful you're not me, Jack. <laughs> yeah, right. So... Oh, boy. That one had a little bit of an effect on him. You ever, uh, like, after a breakup, um, sometimes you need to change the scenery. So now something devastating happens here to our boy Jack London, finds out all this shit, decides his next adventure is going to be to move out to the Yukon, which is experiencing something known as the Yukon Gold Rush. Lawrence Patrick Burke, while I piss this nitro coffee out of my bladder, <laughs> please tell us what the Yukon Gold Rush is. Well, the Yukon Gold Rush was... Uh really kind of timely because again we had the the whole um economy of the united states in a turmoil everybody's out of work and then all of a sudden we're discovering gold in the klondike now the klondike is not alaska the klondike is the western end of canada but for most people to get to that you got to go through alaska which is okay. the united states so there was a couple of different routes to get there but um um the most common. The most, the most common was to go leave either Seattle or San Francisco. It really started to put Seattle on the map because the newspapers got hold of this, got wind of this um, for this um, gold strike. 
in the wilds. Did of it last Utah. long? Oh. No, it was only only a couple of years long, and then uh, things just kind of petered out, and then gold was discovered in Alaska, and the whole shift kind of went away from the Yukon over to Alaska. But um, different different towns like immediately sprung up overnight. Towns that were like maybe fifty or a hundred people now all of a sudden you got twenty thousand people invading this thing and. Do you think that there was people – the reason that there was almost like a quote-unquote invasion was because there are people still holding out from the California gold rush that were just like, oh, maybe there's a chance up here. And then it's like – Well, oh, no. I mean pe- fortunes certainly were made during the California gold rush. But yeah. where, where, you know, 50 years be- – It's gone by. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but right. I'm still like – it's. I'm talking about those people who are like – Maybe there's hope yet. Like uh, I don't know. I was just curious. Yeah, well, if you're out of work or, or the whole economy is in the shitter and now there's an opportunity for making a fortune, um, there's a Chicken. lot of people that are going to to risk that. And it was a, a very uh, difficult decision, if you will, to get there. It's like going to outer space. And who can get there first? Yeah. yeah that's, that's what I would argue it would be. You know, way. when I was reading this um, – the, doing the research on this too, I was thinking about when the whole uh, Alaska pipeline was put in. A lot of guys were out of work. A lot of people were saying, "Well, go up to Alaska and work on the pipeline for um, for construction up there." You know, they're they're paying you exorbitant sums of money. Uh, yeah, you're going to have to make some major sacrifices, and these people made some major sacrifices. And the the amount of people that actually did strike it rich. Very, very, very small percentage. Most of a lot of people died. Um, um, so it's just like comedy, is what you're saying. It's just, <laughs> it's just like comedy. Very, very few of us I make mean, any money off of this. Some of the trails, so just there, Hollywood in general. <laughs> so, some of them were called uh, the one um, pass or route was called uh, uh, Dead Horse because it was literally littered with dead horses and pack mules and everything else because the Canadian government put restrictions on who was allowed into the thing. And you had to have like a thousand or twelve hundred pounds worth of equipment that the the winners are are, you know, totally inhospitable that they were requiring that you come in there with twelve hundred pounds worth of gear. And now you had to go up these mountain passes and stuff and people would have to pack that in and out. Now you can't. One guy cannot carry twelve hundred pounds worth of shit. So that means you now have to break it down into like sixty-five or eighty-pound parcels, and you're go up and back, up and back, up and back. You know how many times before you can actually get your stuff to the other side of the mountain and continue? Because well, when things are serious that way too. Because one of my finest memories with my father Jay is that uh, he and I went on a high adventure canoeing trip. Uh, <laughs> In the uh, uh, what was it? The Upper Saranacs, right? Yeah. So in uh, the Adirondacks, it was a fifty-mile canoe trick, and uh, what you had to do that was pretty cool was that uh, the guide, the first day that you were in base camp, would go through your backpack. And I always thought this was kind of similar because uh, in uh, some of the movies I've seen about the Yukon Gold Rush and the books and everything, they always talk about uh, the town getting provisions before you go in. So uh, before this trip, it uh, you know it was called uh, what was the name of the camp? For, uh, Floodwood. For, yeah, Floodwood. Floodwood Scout Reservation. So before you go out on this 50-mile canoe trek, the guide goes through all your bags and everything like that. And I just remember how funny it was because uh, we – in order to save space, uh, I put a bunch of uh, salt into a plastic bag rather than a salt shaker uh, because uh, I thought it would – you could slide it into the front pocket of a backpack that way. 
And uh, the look on the guide's face when he's going through my bags to make sure I have everything. And all of a sudden, there's just a bag of white powder. (laughs) (laughs) And he's sitting there and goes, all right, I guess that's, you know, we we don't need coffee now. That's good. But uh, now London's up there in this Yukon territory like we talked about. Now, there's a sense of adventure to this. This is what uh, Jack London is kind of synonymous with as far as my estimation, you know. Uh, Spends uh, less than two years, though, of his entire life is actually spent up in the Yukon Territory. But his experiences there wind up changing his life forever. Um, Like, I didn't spend a a shitload of time on a ship in the Navy. I was there about two years on the USS Kearney. But um, that has a huge impact on you. Yeah, a lot of your life. A lot of the based on how often you bring it up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) about four years after that. (laughs) A lot of the things that he writes about later on is from real life experiences that he had. In the Yukon, too. And he didn't really make any money um, for gold, but he was making money for working for other people who were looking for the gold kind of a thing. You have to imagine that White Fang and Call of the Wild never happened without this time in the Yukon. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Without a doubt, for sure. And this is going back to where we led in with Handsome Jack with his photograph with his mouth closed. He's not smiling for uh, for the photograph because... Life is so hard up there, and you know provisions are running low. People are starving to death. People are freezing to death, uh, and scurvy is a major concern because you're not getting a whole lot of citrus fruit up in Alaska in the, in the, <laughs> or up in the Yukon at this time. And uh, he actually loses the four front teeth um, due to scurvy, and scurvy is a lack of vitamin C. I mean. Going into the British Navy, kind of a thing. That's where they got the terminology as limeys because they they determined that scurvy comes from the lack of vitamin C. So eventually, they started packing in limes and lemons uh, for the long sea voyages. But they didn't have that up in the, up in the Yukon. So, which is Jack interesting because the uh, yeah the people up there who uh, the the native people there, their diets are almost exclusively fat and meat, and uh, it's weird because. Uh, just the American standard diet or whatever. We tried to have that while these guys were living up there and they're dying of scurvy and their teeth are falling out and they look like hell. But the native people up there who are eating just fat and meat, their teeth are still preserved in perfect condition when they find the fossils. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable, but he does develop scurvy, like you said. Other gum diseases winds up losing four of his front teeth. While he's in the Yukon Territory, he winds up being taken care of by this legendary figure up there known as the Saint of Dawson, Father William Judge. Okay. So this guy, uh, he's been in a bunch of movies and stuff like that too. Very, very fascinating guy. But he pretty much had the um, uh, almost a soup kitchen hospital of sorts for the people who were coming in who were in uh, poor condition. Uh, London's time there, like you were saying though, Jay, uh, while he's being taken care of by the Saint of Dawson is where he writes to build a fire, which is still heavily studied by English and literature professors around the world and is considered by his own critics to probably be London's best work. That's my favorite of the short stories. And uh, there is not a lot of happy endings either because we uh, – Kahuna brought it up earlier. You can see White Fang. There's the Disney spin on this one right? where it's you know uh, hanging out with White Fang and you know, White Fang's a talking dog voiced by Eddie Murphy or something. <laughs> but uh, no, these are, these are sad, uh, desperate kind of books, if you will. Uh, majority of the stories are just about the brutality that's being experienced out there. And uh, there's also a nature of hubris, too, where the guy uh, in The Call of the Wild decides he's not going to listen to uh, the advice of the people in the camp that he's out there to make his own and uh, winds up dying out in the, the frigid woods. And uh, he, in the building of the fire, too, kind of a, a nice twist of irony here. He builds a fire, and then um, the heat from the fire 
melts the snow on a branch above the fire and causes all the snow to fall down on the fire. So it's like... <laughs> it douses it, yeah. yeah it's actually two different versions of to build a fire. Yes, sir. Uh, and I think they they were published two or three years apart. One, one has a more... Uh, uh, black ending we'll, we'll call it you know some heavy uh, shit yeah <laughs> there you go um, but yeah very very interesting guy and again a, a lot of these experiences and stories that uh, he's heard of or, or uh, talked about um, more f- later in his writings that uh, he, he's writing about what he lived uh, it's, it's pretty cool I would, I would argue that you know and some of you call the wild and white fang both have happy endings because I like dogs more than people. <laughs> there you go. But everything leading up to that, yeah, is fairly brutal in those books. Yeah. They are mean, man, but life was meaner back then, too. <clears throat> so uh, I actually just discovered something. As it turns out, I've seen an adaption of Call of the Wild, actually, by the fucking Peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh, One of the weirdest tapes I had of Charlie Brown that <laughs> I, I that Charlie I liked. Yeah, what a nightmare, Charlie Brown. That was it. And as a kid, it baffled me because I was like, what the fuck? But it was still really cool. <laughs> and now I look at this and I'm like, oh my God. Well, if I remember literally this. like, it's it's a straight up near adaption of it. I believe Snoopy Lucy dies uh, in the snow. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Linus is forced to eat her in order right, to survive. Right. No, the not Snoopy. Snoopy. <laughs> Snoopy's gnawing on a leg bump. Oh man. Uh, well, uh, now he gets back. So now he's out of the Yukon Territory. London returns to California, intent to uh, escape manual labor. Does not want to go back to this. He's now seen the brutal conditions of the Yukon, but he also doesn't want to go back to the fucking cannery. So he has a his interesting line here. He decides he's going to sell his brain in a sort of uh, fuck you move to the rich people that he resented. London went through some difficulty getting published until he finally received forty dollars for one of his uh, public uh, uh, public ugh, published short stories. Which, by the way, if you adjust for inflation, Mister J, uh, one thousand one hundred dollars. All right, that's not bad. That's still more money than I've ever made for a single gig in comedy. I'll give him that. But uh, due to the boom in printed fiction and the popularity of short stories, which you talked about earlier, man, that's what uh, London was best at. London's able to make uh, in 2018 dollars, you adjust for inflation here, uh, between all the publications in uh, the year 1900, he's able to make $75,000 off of his writings, okay? Wait, for all together from everything? Because every, you saw his list of work, man. I mean, he's spitting out. He'll write a journal. He'll write an article for a newspaper. He'll do this. He'll do that. He's got short stories. He's got longer novels. He's got poems. A little bit of everything. Now, was this a time where, like, like are his daughters still, well, his descendants, are they still getting stuff? Or is his stuff long in the public domain? Uh, he's pretty much, he's largely in the public domain, too, because, uh, I mean, he is an American legend. and then uh, But there's still got to be some sort of a profit being made off of him, I would imagine. Now, 1903, London wrote what would become his most popular work, The Call of the Wild. He sold it to a famous paper, The Saturday Evening Post, for $750. All right? Not a bad chunk of change back then. No, it was not. Now, the book rights are also given to Macmillan Publishing, pretty famous publishing firm still around today, who uh, ensure that the book is a guaranteed success. London sells his brains, and he's not really going to be going back to oyster pirating yeah, anytime soon. Better than 10 cents an hour at the cannery. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he <laughs> made it at this point. Uh, London had affection, uh, but not love, for his first wife. She largely feels the same way, kind of a, a, a marriage by friendship, if you will. 
the two of them have this uh, long history together, and they're comfortable enough to uh, be married but without any sort of romance. Uh, her name is Bessie that he decides to get married to. And uh, Bessie was a rather conservative woman, uh, not quite ready for the uh, uh, the wild lifestyle that accompanies uh, being married to Jack London. And uh, as we covered uh, in the, the early part of this episode, uh, when you're Eskimo cousins with Houdini, that's uh, – that's a small circle to be in, you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, Bessie was kind of a, a purity-driven kind of a person here, and uh, they did have two daughters, Joan and Becky. Uh, London kept the family in a very comfortable house in Piedmont where he would continue to write and uh, thrive as a writer. Uh, but Bessie and London began having marital issues due to Bessie's uh, problem with the fact that London loved alcohol and prostitutes. All right? Not really stuff you can come back from in a marriage, all right, unless you're the lead singer of Kiss. But uh, Bessie feared London might give her a venereal disease because he – when he would come back from these trips, Kahuna, she would not want to be around him. They wouldn't even like share a marital bed or anything like that. So she didn't want to have sex with him when he came back from these voyages he was on because she was positive that he was banging prostitutes overseas. Well, I think that would – that also might be that um, they weren't having any kind of uh, relations other yeah. than the – other than he and Sheehan involved for the for the birth of their two kids, uh, and that was pretty much it. But, yeah, you guaranteed uh, they did it twice, but not much after yeah. that. <laughs> so the marriage children would more end, like uh, fuck trophies. <laughs> <laughs> well, their marriage ends unfortunately in 1904 with a formal divorce, and London moves out. But he still has nothing but fondness for her. All right, these. He He's admires still taking this care woman, of the kids. Too. Takes care of the kids. Takes care of her. He's not a bad guy. He just wasn't a marriage where they were in love with each other. But uh, there's a little of contention there at times. More than a little. <laughs> I think it's better than most because there's a lot of people that just be like, all right, I'm moving out. Because you could – keep in mind, you could just move to a different state and never provide for those kids again. <laughs> but uh, much like in his father's letter, London decides a change of scenery is necessary for himself. Uh, and he goes ahead. He takes a position – this is my favorite part of his life. Uh, takes a position as a war correspondent for the San Francisco Examiner, a paper owned by media magnate. William Randolph Hearst. Have you ever heard of him, Kahuna? <laughs> Do you know any movies that are made loosely about his life that are considered the greatest, you know, movie of all time? I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I hear Citizen you. Wow. Yeah. Citizen Kane, you were right. You started saying and then you stopped. Citizen Kane is uh, based off the life of William Randolph Hearst. little uh, side note here that I think people will find interesting. In the movie Rosebud, that's the whole uh, mystery behind the movie, so I won't ruin what Rosebud means in the movie. But uh, Orson Welles is such a um, – he's such an annoying prick um, <laughs> with how smart and genius he was. He writes this movie. He finds out that William Randolph Hearst refers to his girlfriend's uh, pussy as Rosebud, <laughs> that perhaps I'll see Rosebud later on today. So he goes ahead and he uses that as uh, the nickname for it. So then uh, Orson Welles finds this out and writes it into the movie loosely based about the guy's life where they change just enough details that William Randolph Hearst doesn't get any credit for the movie. So, oh, and then just to add uh, another fuck you. Censors. <laughs> yeah, and then another fuck you, Orson Welles plays him. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, during... But Orson, I mean, um, William Randolph Hearst, too, made it his life's mission to not only own a couple of newspapers, but he wanted to be, you know... Across the across the uh, the U.S. and across the globe, that he wanted to be the controlling interest in all in all media. His great quote. You remember his quote about uh, for I believe it was the Spanish American War. Uh, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war. Right. 
So oh, provide the story too. Mm-hmm. I just found the most <clears throat> roundabout Jersey connection. Oh, God bless you. So his boss was William Hurst. The movie was Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, Orson Welles. Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, New Jersey. Wow, there you go. No <laughs> shit. Not bad. You had to shoehorn that. Yeah, one, that one was. Um, oh my god, I had I had like a map. Had, that was a couple of steps. Yeah, that was a <laughs> that was a few steps. I'm forcing it on that one. I don't care. I'm cool I with lo- it. I, I love finding the Jersey connections. Well, now uh, London's time. Uh, he joins up. He takes this war correspondence thing. The big uh, to do in the world this time is the Russo-Japanese War. Now, we don't have a Jersey tie in here, but we do have a tie into another theme of the show in a second. Um, London is traveling with the Japanese Imperial Army. And because he's our boy Jack London, who likes to drink and doesn't like to follow orders and kind of, you know, does his own thing, he's arrested on four separate occasions for disobeying orders and getting too close to the fighting lines. His final arrest was for attacking one of his Japanese assistants. London was often called racist, like we talked about earlier, Jay, uh, for writing about what he called the Yellow Peril, which was his name for the large Asian migrations to the United States. However, London's writings uh, of the Japanese culture, it's very clear that he admired a lot of parts of their society. And Japanese people are actually very fond of Jack London's portrayal of them because Japan wasn't really um, – they were a world power, but they weren't on the world stage as a power, if you will, at this time. So they're very interesting here and they are fond of how London portrayed them. Now, uh, that's despite the four arrests. Um, the man who arranged the, the release of London when he was finally uh, imprisoned that one last time okay, uh, for assaulting his own assistants uh, is the guy who uh, winds up having to organize his uh, release. He's also the guy who wins the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, ending the Russo-Japanese War by inviting the two leaders to come in and sign the Treaty of Portsmouth. Want to guess who that is, Kahuna? Who's the one guy we tell you not to fuck with on this podcast? No fucking way. (laughs) No fucking way. Jack London's in prison. All right. Well, guess who's going to get him out? Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt. All right. Who's going to end the Russo-Japanese War? Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt. So London then returns to the United States, and we're getting towards the uh, the end of his – it's a very short life uh, for our friend Jack London. And uh, he returns to the United States and is given an honorary membership to uh, – as uh, what we were talking about here with um, uh, the Bohemian Grove, which is a secret society uh, uh, full of writers. Now, uh, LP, what do you know about the Bohemian Grove? And Jay, uh, seriously, hop in with anything you have on the Bohemian (laughs) Grove. These are wild people. Honestly, the Bohemian Grove at that time was a lot of very relevant writers, but none of them had the staying power of Jack London. Right. I mean, none of them would even, I think uh, you have it up on the screen now, Kahuna, but do you even recognize any of those names that you just backed off of? Well, there's a lot of names on there. Now, there's also a secret society kind of a vibe going on with these guys, too. So Bohemian Grove, the, it, literally he was invited for what's known as summer hijinks, which you can only imagine is like, a bunch of people fucking like um, in uh, what was that Tom Cruise movie uh, with all the masks and everything? Eyes wide. Yeah, th- there's shut. kind of an eyes wide shut vibe going on over here. Yeah, it's a Bohemian club, but they would meet at the the Bohem- Bohemian Grove. Stanley Kubrick's but, uh, last movie, actually. It was, yep. uh, and it wasn't just writers; it was artisans of of various uh, genres, if you will, that uh, took part in that. And you might be um, elected in by an, uh, with an honorary. Uh, 
entry, if you will, membership. They made sure that uh, the head of the San Francisco uh, military bases were always given honorary membership. So this uh, this little crew grow here. Now we got to keep moving on because we got to wrap up before the next episode. But uh, it is uh, around this time frame that London has his second marriage to uh, the woman that uh, Jay pointed out would make uh, our boy Jack a Eskimo cousin of Harry Houdini himself. Uh, Charmian, okay, or Charmian. Is, uh, Charmaine. Yeah, Charmaine. I already want to pronounce it. There's a million ways to do it. If you go on YouTube, it's Charmian. That's how All they right. say it. Charmian. Um, who's also, by the way, five years older than him. But uh, in her, our boy Jack finally gets his uh, partner in crime, if you will. Uh, <laughs> she's happy to accompany him on uh, a bunch of his travels, and she's far more adventurous in and out of bed than the previous wife, Bessie. So what does that tell you? This girl doesn't mind throwing a finger in the old poop chute. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your thing. Oh, it's, no. uh, I'm not saying oh, that's my thing, shit. but uh, if you're listening. American Loser was the she, podcast where KP tries to tell us something. She was also a very wealthy woman, a brilliant writer and editor, but this is what comes up first on your list. It's uh, it, <laughs> you're, you're pretty much what your Tinder bio says you are. All right? That's how I always look at this. Now, London's interesting here, too, because he's one of the first American authors to write about Hawaii. Now, we've got enough of the, uh, the groundwork laid on this show to uh, start having throwbacks to earlier episodes that we're mentioning. The third episode of this show was about the last queen of Hawaii, Queen uh, Lili Yukalani. Okay? who was actually a good friend of Jack London's. He would sit with her often. They would have conversations. He would write about her. He would interview her. And it's because of Jack London that we also get a lot of her story and how really they were just done dirty down there in Hawaii, man. There's no way to defend what we had. There's no way to defend the conspiracy that went on down there. I'll put it that way. Other things he covered uh, uh, would also be the uh, sport of surfing as well as uh, providing an eyewitness account of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 between uh, traveling writing and his forays into uh, political influence for causes like socialism, atheism, and animal activism, London embarked on what would become his biggest failure. So, so far, everything the guy touches turns to gold. You want to be a writer? You want to get out of the, uh, the cannery? You want to stop being an oyster pirate? You know, all right, let's do this. Uh, you know what? R- writers make good things for lots of different occasions. Uh, have you ever known them to make good ranchers, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they they said that he had a lot of progressive ideas and uh, futuristic kind of a things, but he wasn't really, <laughs> he wasn't suited for being a coming a rancher. <laughs> um, but he was kind of a, a gentleman farmer that really didn't know anything about it. So, An abject failure, by the way. Uh, his uh, farm was known as Beauty Farm. And uh, despite earning an estimated for inflation here, by the way, $1.8 million a year as a writer, Kahuna. London was determined to become a successful rancher, and it blew up in his fucking face, okay? There's no way around this one. Abject failure. And uh, now London was also suffering from the uh, late stages of alcoholism at this point. He could booze pretty good. Uh, Jay, you're a guy who can put him away. I've seen you put him away whenever you want to. What's the most you ever think you spent on a single night drinking? My wife intends to listen to this broadcast of the podcast. (laughs) So I will hold up a number of fingers to you. You react appropriately. Understood. Understood. Uh, Substantial. That's about what I was looking for. Um, Well, in my Navy days, we used to have, uh, if if you had a $100 tab at the end of the night, that was a big night of drinking for us down in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Mr. London was capable of spending over $4,000 on one of his, quote, mad drunks. All right, so that's why they kind of just how, how long? 
How long would those last? Uh, and would... four thousand in back then dollars. Uh, no, no, four thousand in modern uh, okay. adjusted for inflation dollars. So still a couple hundred dollars uh, back then. So that's still a good night uh, by any stretch that's of the imagination. A good night drinking four thousand, putting away four thousand dollars. I wonder well, what the uh, price of a shot. I wonder really. what the <laughs> price of a shot is back then. I'm curious. Well, he failed unfortunately with this ranch. It did not go how he wanted. They considered it like. Um, just something that a, a rich man as a hobby would want to do, where it's like, oh, I'm just a gentleman farmer, you see. I'm just like all of you old sods over here. <laughs> and it kind of just, it never fits him, man. The prize of this ranch, though, is uh, what he calls Wolf House. That uh, it's a absolutely beautiful, and Jay is uh, already uh, giving it, cause it's doomed, okay? It's absolutely doomed here. <laughs> uh, Wolf House is a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. It's the dream house built to the specific designs of Jack London. All right, it takes a long time for them to go ahead and uh, get this thing off the ground here. Uh, the ranch, uh, over $4,000, like we said, would go into one of his mad drunks. Imagine how much money he's going to pour into his dream house. All right. Two yeah, point when you make what you say, $1.2 million a year? Yeah, he puts two years' salary into this house. $2.2 million is put into this. Fuck you, Tristan. Um, <laughs> so $2.2 million gets put into this house, and it's designed to London's every women dream. The crew worked so passionately on the project that the foreman felt a sense of pride like the house was his own child. Uh, London and Charming were set to move into the house as it neared completion until it unexpectedly burnt to the ground. Yeah. Spontaneous combustion. Yep. Now, Which probably means they were getting near, very near completion, and they were just doing some final finishing on either the floors or the woodwork, would be my guess, as a as a carpenter. And some dumb, some dumb asshole left a pile of oily rags someplace. Did you throw those rags out? Into, no, that was your job, man. <laughs> yeah, burst into flames and the place burnt to the ground or uh, burnt to the stone. It devastates the people here. Uh, London felt like he had lost a child. That's how it was. But he also vows to rebuild. Uh, he then goes on a 10-month trip to Hawaii, where he's hanging out with our friend Queen Lili Ukulani. Uh, he uh, returns from that 10-month trip, 1916, January. All right? He dies on his property in Glen Ellen just a few months later. London's travels had sadly caught up with him, and his whiskey-bottle-a-day habits lead to uh, uremia, which uh, Jay covered earlier. Doesn't sound pleasant, doesn't smell pleasant, doesn't seem pleasant at all. Between that, the kidney failure and other infections from his travels, uh, including the scurvy he got from his time in the Yukon. All this led to his need for morphine in order to heal his extreme pain. Uh, London had often written in his works about suicide. One of his, uh, one work of his, rather, the lead character, uh, went through a doctor-assisted euthanasia. All right, so between that and then the advocacy in his own um, uh, autobiography, if you will, about wanting to, uh, the, the sense of uh, suicide, of wanting to jump into the water and just have the water overcome you, uh, kind of led to him also wanting to... Uh, there's speculation that he killed himself, is what we're trying to say. But uh, the accidental morphine overdose is still disputed here. However, what is not disputed is London's legacy. He remains one of the, uh, the faces of American exceptionalism, uh, the great American novelist, the American dream personified, shitty rancher but ample adventurer. His property is preserved to this day in the Jack London National Historic Park, and his works are still studied and celebrated to this day. Uh, Mind we'll, if I say something? Hit me, buddy. I like you know how we we started with the scale at the beginning of the thing. How there is the American <laughs> Loser scale. I'm gonna suggest something that's gonna sound a little fucking weird, but bear with me. I can understand him being the actual 
foundation of the scale. If that makes any fucking sense whatsoever. If not, just consider it the mad ramblings of Big Kahuna on a Sunday <laughs> night. Yeah, Kahuna's having him, one of his mad drunks right now. Jack, <laughs> oh, but, man. Uh, no, uh, Jay, uh, real quick, uh, where can people find you on social media? We do have listeners for the show. Well, we're going to see how this works. I currently have 15 followers at, on Twitter at JAugustHC. Uh, KP is one of them. So consider if you it 16. Find, <laughs> consider 16. And we're going to see how I can go up from 15 to uh, well, maybe 16 now to as many as 20. Wow. Because wow. I'd like to have enough following that later on, if I do get famous, my Twitter feed can follow me and ruin me. That's <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> Uh, getting famous is an interesting problem to have. That's uh, it's one of those things here. Uh, really, just follow him because uh, when Jay talks about getting famous, you don't know if he's talking about uh, you know success as a writer, success as a stand-up comedian, or a uh, manifesto after he inevitably shoots up a government building. <laughs> so there's no way to tell. Um, LP, where can people find you? Find me? Oh, yeah, South Beach in about two weeks. <laughs> Probably out in the garage <laughs> working on something. <laughs> oh, that part's going to suck, man. Hit me, brother. You mind if I give you one final insult for our boy Jack London here? Absolutely. He died on March 22nd, or Mar- November 22nd. It's the same day that C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley died in 1963. That stands out in everybody's mind because November 22nd, 1963 is when JFK Absolutely. was killed. <laughs> oh, man. So now his, the day of his death is now three other prolific writers and nobody's going to notice it. Oh, that's brilliant. You that's share your same death day. Share the same death day and it's completely overshadowed. Sorry, Jack. Should have waited one more day to kill yourself. You were in control on this one. Yeah, yeah no holiday for you. Brutal, man. With that morphine for one more day. That's <laughs> half the battle there, man. But that's why I did say there is a little bit of a Kurt Cobain type thing with him where he's got this gorgeous place out in California and, uh, you know, winds up uh, possibly killing his own self because he just couldn't deal with the pain anymore, man. Yeah, but, but you know what? Uh, he had so many things wrong with him, tropical diseases and uh, the scurvy, the the uh, kidney failure, the alcoholism and everything else. And morphine was probably the only thing that was going to be able to relieve, to give him any kind of relief from the pain. So, you know, I think it's very questionable as to whether he just offed himself or whether he was just looking to seek some relief from the pain that he was going <laughs> through. So. But that's my take. No, I agree with you on that one, man. But what a fascinating life the guy led here. And uh, again, we we put a positive spin on it with some of the Disney movies and everything. But this guy wrote some heavy shit. So uh, anything else before we roll out here, fellas? He predicted fascism. Really? He predicted the rise of fascism. His early short story, The Iron Eel, predicted the rise of Hitler 20 years before it happened. No shit. This is interesting. I'm reading about some of his animal activism. It's literally the smallest thing <laughs> on his Wikipedia page, but it's actually kind of cool. He was one of the first people to call out circus animals like in, in their abuse and all that type of stuff, and I think that that's actually kind of cool. The elephant wants to smoke the cigarette, Kahuna. Don't you understand? <laughs> what don't he you enjoys. understand? <laughs> he enjoys. But, no, uh, he was a fascinating guy here on that one. we got to move in because our next guest is coming. We're going to try to bang out another episode here before um, LP goes back to South Beach and abandons me. Uh, but, guys, uh, I want to say thank you again. If you like the show, please do us a favor. Leave us a review on iTunes. I'm not asking any money from you yet, okay? We're going to have to eventually because I lose money every time we're here. But that being said, uh, Kahuna's going to have to edit out the part where I dropped a couple of F-bombs unnecessarily around the 28-minute mark. <laughs> so if you, guys hear, if you guys hear a jump in the action, it's because I had one of my freak-out moments. And we're going to wrap this show up here because I have to pee again because this nitro coffee flies through you. 
But that being said, guys, uh, my name was KP Burke. I want to say thank you to all my guests. I want to say thank you to my friend Jay August coming on, my old man for making me love history. Kahuna for the ones and twos. Mike and Ming for giving us a studio to do the show in here. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Jack London, American Loser. An American Loser the day I was born. An American Loser the day I was born. An American Loser the day I was born. Born.